Hello and welcome to A History of Christian Theology. My name is Chad Kim. Uh, this will be week two of Africans Against the World. We will be talking about Saints Perpetua and Felicitas, uh, two of the earliest known martyrs in Christian history uh, who both died in North Africa uh, in the early 3rd century, around 203 AD, we think. We actually think March in 203 AD. So um, I hope that you enjoy this episode. Uh, if you have any questions about the readings or if you would like to see, there's PowerPoints that go along with this, any of that kind of information, uh, just drop us a note on Facebook and I can try to get that to you, uh, make that available if you would like to see it. Um, so thank you for listening. Uh, please rate us, review us on iTunes. Uh, this is week two and I'll be uploading again. Uh, sorry, I've been finishing my dissertation, so I haven't been getting these up uh, as quickly as I would like, but uh, my dissertation should be done next week. So hopefully we'll have a little more time uh, to, to get stuff uploaded and everything. But thank you for listening. Um, and we do enjoy comments uh, to let us know that you are listening. So uh, please rate us, review us on iTunes. Thank you very much. Um, please pray with me. Uh, dear Lord, we thank you for this time that we have uh, to gather together to remember um, those people who have gone before us um, and who have been faithful um, to you even in the most extreme of situations. Um, and we thank you for your Holy Spirit, which gives us strength um, when we go through persecutions and sufferings as well. Um, so we ask your Holy Spirit to be here with us, to teach us and guide us. Um, and ultimately, uh, we pray that all of this would lead us uh, to know you better. Uh, it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. All right. Um, so uh, I think maybe one face I rec don't recognize from last week, which is great. Um, I have, uh, if you want to sign up, uh, if you haven't signed up yet, uh, please do so. I can show you how to do it afterwards, or we can do it upstairs. Um, then you'll have access to our... Um, syllabus and readings, and um, you can get caught up uh, a little bit if you like uh, from that. Uh, uh, from that, the what I guess they well, it's a Google Drive is what it amounts to. So even if you just want to email me um, or come see me afterwards, I can email you that stuff. Uh, but you'd have access to it there. Um, so we kind of laid the groundwork. I said I went over some stuff about Africa time period. Um, kind of where we're at uh, and why we are focusing on this area. Um, and uh, so, you know, I'm not really going to go back through too much of that. Uh, one thing that I had you all read last week um, that I didn't expect you to bring necessarily, but um, was a reading by C.S. Lewis. And um, it's, an, it's in the introduction to a translation of uh, a Christian from Africa from the 4th century called Athanasius. Um, and he basically gives an argument for why Christians should continue to read um, original authors, right? So instead of always reading people who've been writing in the last 20 years, um, we should look at people who have been, you know, time-tested, right? So these kind of people we should go back to um, and think through, you know, um, people have been Christians for 2,000 years, and, you know, there's a lot of reflection that's really helpful um, from those earlier sources. Um, so I would uh, commend that to you. Um, uh, if you want to go back and read that. He also gives a kind of um, argument for mere Christianity. Um, if you're familiar, he also wrote a book under that title, um, but how Christians can find commonality and affinity uh, with people who are not maybe like evangelical Baptists um, or something, um, and which 
uh, is broadly, I guess, what we are here, although we don't talk about the Baptist part so much. Um, <laughs> and, um, yeah, so some of these people are saints in the Catholic Church and Orthodox Church, and we're not going to talk too much about um, the, like particular categories like, like that, what makes them saints and how they get sainted and this sort of thing, but just to be aware that these, are, these people are celebrated in many church traditions. Um, and so C.S. Lewis gives a kind of argument for why we can find uh, benefit from uh, these people, even if they don't you know, come from our particular tradition, which is much younger. Um, so one reason I got interested in uh, church history and things uh, was because I was raised Southern Baptist, and you know, I used to think, like, I guess history of Christians went from basically Paul to Billy Graham to my pastor, and there was nothing else in between. Um, and, uh, and then I went to a presbytery. Yeah, apparently, yeah. And then I went to a Presbyterian school, and they were like, oh, yeah, you got to go back further. Go back a couple hundred years to the Reformation. Um, <laughs> and then that left out about 1,500 years. Um, and so I've been continuing to go further and further back uh, to see how Christianity came to be what it is today. Um, and so there will be things that, you know, maybe we, don't dis- we disagree with, which is fine. Um, but I think that there's a lot uh, to uh, recommend it. Um, and C.S. Lewis is just great, right? I mean, you know, so uh, I, th- I felt like he was like an easy one that a lot of people could um, connect to. Um, all right. So that's that. Um, th- uh, this is a, an icon of the martyrdom of Perpetua and Felicitas. Um, it's pretty gruesome. Um, but it's a, it, so let me sort of uh, warn you before we get started. If you haven't done the readings yet, um, you will see that these are, these are hard stories. There are two women, um, who are, one of whom has just given birth and one who's in the process of giving birth while in prison, and they're both about to be killed. Um, and so, um, yeah, it, this is not a fun story. This is a hard Sunday um, and a hard set of stories, but I think that they're important to remember, for us to remember, what Christians have gone through uh, to get to where we are today. Um, we'll look at a guy next week who's called Tertullian, um, and he's from North Africa, uh, which is where we're kind of looking at on the map here anyway. Um, and Tertullian says, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Um, so we'll talk about that more uh, next week. Uh, but this is a line that said, you know, sort of encapsulates this idea that Christians went through a lot of persecution, but that only made them stronger. Um, and somehow the Romans thought that they could kill all the Christians and eventually they would stamp it out. Um, but that's part of this. We call, I, I'm saying uh, the name of this course is uh, Africans Against the World, How the Resolve of African Christians Shaped the Church Story. So a lot of these stories are from Africa, from African Christians who would not be deterred, right? And so they would not let the might of Rome overcome them. Um, and so, um, yeah, so it's a hard, it's a hard week um, and a hard set of stories. Uh, but, but again, I think, it's, I think it's important not to forget, right? I mean, you know, we don't want to let um, some of these things go um, un, untalked about, unsaid, um, just because they're hard. So uh, my, you know, sort of just fair warning, I guess. Uh, so this is our map. Um, so this is the Roman Empire in 117 AD. Um, that date is um, 
just means that that was the furthest extent of the Roman Empire, when Rome was at its greatest. Um, and this is the, that time frame, though, is close to what we're going to talk about. Uh, but we're going to look uh, just up here. Um, so this is Carthage. So this is where we're going to be. Um, so the, the events of the story that you read took place in 203 AD. Um, so, and they took place here in Carthage. So this is Rome. Um, this is the, the most powerful entity in the world at the time. They control all of this territory. Um, in their minds, this is the world. Um, the world existed around this sea, um, and they called it, uh, the Romans just called it our sea. Um, it's not the Mediterranean, it's just ours, because um, they controlled everything around it. Um, and so there's no need to give it any other name but to say, we own it. Um, and that's how the Romans looked at the world. Anybody who would go against the Romans, um, they said, how can you go against us? We're the most powerful um, you know, force in the world. But of course, Christ comes in Palestine, in this area, um, uh, which we call today Israel, and, um, and of course, Jesus says that he is Lord, right? He says that, and he comes in power, and he comes to save us. And Rome says, um, you know, maybe not. We have something to say about it. Um, that's why, if you saw in the syllabus, I, I mentioned some passages from Romans, um, and I'll, I'll get to those in a moment, but, but basically those are why it was offensive um, to Romans uh, to, to call themselves Christians. The Romans hated Christians, and we're going to talk about why. Um, let's see. Um, so just uh, m- my favorite uh, theologian, St. Augustine, and he would... Um, so about 200 years after the events today of, of today's story, he remembers uh, the martyrs. He remembers Perpetua and Felicitas. And he, he tells his, his Christians that in that same area um, where they died, he says, remember that the one that is God who gave them uh, their courage, gave it to them, is, is also powerful enough to give it to us. Since one price was paid for all of us, it is not the punishment that makes the martyr, but the cause. So I, I put that in here um, as we get started to just remember, uh, for, like as, as Augustine tells us, um, that this is also meant to be an encouragement. Um, oddly enough, these are brutal stories, but the Christians took encouragement from it. Um, they thought, wow, how God was with them, even in the most extreme of circumstances, he will be with us no matter what happens to us. So we're going to look at, um, and that's kind of the lens that I want us to look at this story in, is why is this story, which is so hard to read, encouraging and told and retold um, in the early years of the church? Why did they find strength in this and not run the other direction, right? Why would they look at, at these, the death of their friends and their family members and say, yeah, we want to be a part of that faith. We want to be committed to that same God. It seems like you would want to run the other direction, right? Um, any sane person would say, why would I want to be a part of that? Um, but, but Augustine gives his reason why he thinks it's important. Um, I'm going to do a little timeline here. Um, just so we're clear, the martyrdom of Perpetua and Felicitas, um, that's 203. Um, so that's about 170 years after Christ. Um, last week we talked about St. Mark. Um, so he's the author of the, the gospel in the New Testament. Um, he dies in Alexandria around uh, 67 AD. Um, 
and uh, the destruction of the temple of, of, of the Jerusalem temple was in 70 AD. So this is a very significant moment um, in uh, uh, the history of um, Israel and uh, its relationship to Rome. Um, we're going to talk about Tertullian next week. But you'll notice that there's about a 130-year period um, between Mark coming to Africa and Perpetua and Felicitas. So in this 130-year period, we don't have a whole lot of information um, as to what was going on. Um, We think that um, someone must have brought Mark's message all the way to Carthage. Um, So to go back to our map, um, Mark dies here. Uh, we're going to talk about a place over here. And we actually don't really know how the gospel came all the way this far west. Um, It's a little bit left to history, but we know by 203, the story that we're reading today, um, that Christians were dying in defense of their faith. Um, And there's a full, as we'll see as we read along, there's basically a full church there. Um, There's a bishop, there's a deacon, um, they're studying to become Christians at a house church, um, and that's actually where they're found out and rounded up by the Roman soldiers. Um, And so somehow there's a full church going on here. We just don't have a lot of historical information for whatever reason. Um, so, um, but yeah, so anyway, Mark goes here. He's from here, dies here, uh, but the gospel comes to Carthage um, and obviously is influencing people, uh, but we, we don't really know the stories. Um, there's so just out of curiosity, yeah. when you say that, do you mean there's sort of no church history about Africa or is there just kind of not much church history during that time? Not much church history at all. Period. Yeah. Well, I mean, well, or sorry, church history in the African area. Yeah, we know other stories about what's going on up here. We just don't know exactly how it gets here. Um, I mean, for one thing, so so this part of Africa is called the breadbasket of Rome. Um, so we wouldn't think about it. Um, you know, normally we assume North Africa, the Saharan Desert, um, it doesn't seem like it would be very uh, uh, fertile, but it is. So north of the Saharan Desert, all along this coast, um, is actually very good, um, good soil for growing grain. So the Romans, they take this area um, about 300 years before what we're talking about, 400 years before what we're talking about, because they need the grain. They need to feed the Romans. And so they say, hey, we're going to take over this area and you're going to give us your produce. Um, You can take a little bit, but we're going to take the bulk of it. So there's a lot of shipping and other things going on between North Africa and Rome. Um, And uh, uh, Peter uh, dies in Rome, right? So one of Christ's... um, disciples dies in Rome. So we know the gospel goes here. We just don't know exactly who brought it um, south to Carthage. Um, but but we all, like I say, we know that there was communication between the areas. Um, so, uh, is that helpful? Okay. Isn't, isn't that kind of one of the interesting features of this period of time, that there was actually like a remarkable degree of communication? Well, like, it, it, amongst, especially history up to this time, like, yeah. If, if the gospel was going to come about, this is the time when it would probably spread the quickest. That's right. The yeah. So I think Mark begins with a, a quote, Mark 1. He says something about um, uh, when the time was right um, and the gospel comes. So, yeah, so we talk about Roman roads, 
Roman communication. The fact that Rome controlled this territory at the time of Christ is actually very important. Um, so sometimes it's called the Pax Romana, that is the Roman peace. Um, and so Rome just destroyed all of its enemies. Um, and so that way anybody could actually travel fairly freely um, because Rome was in control. Um, and so, yeah, so, so uh, there's a lot of um, letter writing, there's a lot of travel, there's a lot of trade, because Rome just says, we'll kill you if you, you know, fight against our um, control. Um, yeah? That, and they, my understanding is they, they spend an enormous amount of money and time building the infrastructure to actually travel and, and you know, for commerce purposes and, and otherwise. Yeah. I mean, just the roads and the bridges and all that stuff. That's right. Yeah, so um, <laughs> this is a sort of a philosophy joke, um, but it's said um, that uh, Greeks give us philosophy and the Romans give us logistics. Um, <laughs> and, and so the Greeks were really heady and they were very smart, but you'll notice that we don't, call, you know, we don't uh, think about Greece as having this great big empire. We think of the Romans. Why? Well, they didn't sit around and think about things. Uh, they went and did logistics. Um, they made sure they could get their armies anywhere fast, um, and so, yeah, so anyway, uh, that, that may be why we don't remember Roman philosophers as much. They spent much more time thinking about how to get from point A to point B and kill their enemies, and they were very good at it. Um, Setting aside the issue of how, you know, sort of the history of Christianity in this time period, you know, between Mark and this lady whose name I struggle to pronounce. Perpetua? Perpetua, yeah, unless I'm looking at it. Um, <laughs> You know, one of the things that struck me by this story is her youth mm-hmm. and uh, the fact that she was a brand new Christian. In fact, that uh, that uses this word uh, catechumen. Yeah, which I didn't even know what meant. So okay. I looked it up. Yeah. And uh, you know, she was a she was not yet baptized and had not yet been confirmed in her faith. Right. Um, so you know, she's a brand new Christian. She's very young. She has this new baby, and her father just pleads and pleads and pleads with her. Yep. And uh, uses you know all the stuff like I'm old. This is going to kill me. And it practically does. Apparently, this sort of stuff. What What do we know, if anything, about like what what might have prompted this conversion to Christianity? Ah, you know, and, and maybe it's sort of my westernized, fluent <laughs> perspective on Christianity. But it just seems bizarre to me that this young woman would just like wake up one day and like. I'm going to be a Christian. Yeah. And so much so that I'm willing to die for it. Right. I mean, that really, that's what really struck me. Like, yeah. what, what prompted this? And yeah. I don't know. Do we have any sense? Not for her specifically. But Just broadly. What was going on historically? Mm. Yeah. Um, I mean, is there, I, I can give my answer. Does anybody else have a, a thought about that? Um, we can make it a little more conversation or I can take it. I don't know. <laughs> okay. Well, um, so there's a lot of things. One, um, Celsus is this famous um, anti-Christian in the second century about this period. Um, and he says that Christianity is the religion of women, slaves, and children, and other idiots. Um, and so he says... Why would anybody, so he is an intellectual male with money, um, and he says, why would anyone want to be a part of Christianity? And he's writing to another wealthy male, actually, origin, um, an educated male. Um, and he says, you're so stupid for being affiliated with them. Um, and, um, and so I think there was an appeal to Christianity. Um, and so contrary to the, t- like, you know, we have, um, 
we have to be somewhat uh, careful as uh, sort of historians, um, thinking back into their time frame um, to not necessarily assume all the things that we assume about the equality of men and women and um, you know other kinds of, of like human rights issues and things. Um, and people obviously were much freer in their speech, as was Kelsus. Um, but Christianity afforded a value to women and children and slaves that was unavailable to them outside of that. Um, now, uh, Perpetua is a very fascinating character because she's actually educated. Um, she writes her own account. Um, so, um, you know, she, you know, may, the, her may be a harder question, um, but... Uh, but yeah, I mean, I think Christianity at the time, you know, Paul says that neither slave nor free, male nor female, Genesis, uh, 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 Galatians 3.28, um, right? So he's saying, like, he's saying in the church, we are all one. Um, and so he's, like, affording them a kind of equality, if you like, um, that was unavailable to them outside of Christianity. Um, so I think from, like, a sort of social standpoint, um, Christianity valued people in ways uh, that were that was extremely uncommon. Um, but that... I think, you know, we, I also want to be careful trying to say, like, try to give sociological reasons or whatever. Um, I mean, the gospel presumably is compelling because it's the gospel. Um, and, um, but, but I think it's a, it's a, I mean, it's an important question. Um, but, but I think, you know, part of the answer would be, um, so why does Christianity have this influence? Um, well, I mean, it's a story that says, um, even though you are in these terrible situations, maybe, um, or you have, you know, you don't have the equality that you uh, recognize that you desire or something, you know, God came for you, right? Um, and so as, as uh, Augustine said in that quote, too, um, he said that we know that Christ paid the price for us. Um, and so God values us. Um, so I think, you know, part of the answer is the gospel is the gospel, um, but, but for the s- sort of broader social conditions. And Christians educated, so, okay, so let's, I'm going to turn to this. Christians also educated uh, their people. Um, and so uh, you may not have, uh, your parents may not have a lot of wealth, um, but uh, so what you would do when you would become a Christian, so you use this word catechumen, right? So, so um, let, me, let me set the story, and then I'm going to further answer your question about this. So, okay, so our story is Perpetua and Felicitas. They're these, so Perpetua is a noble woman. Um, Felicitas is her attendant, um, her slave. Um, in the story, we hear, I, I didn't have you read much about Felicitas because I didn't want to give you too much reading, uh, but she has a very similar story um, in terms of her suffering and where she's at. She's actually um, pregnant. Um, she hasn't given birth yet. And she goes with her, um, uh, with Perpetua, with her friend, her, I mean, her, you know, uh, their uh, Perpetua, in, in the sense, owns. I mean, it's a it's a slave uh, culture, um, but she decides to stay with her um, mis- mistress um, and uh, goes to the catechumen. It goes to the church. Um, so all these people who are about to be killed, they were together in a house church. We think. Um, we don't, it doesn't actually say house church in the text, but that's where this would have happened. So what is a catechumenate? Um, if you thought you wanted to become a Christian, Christians gathered people together, the, the bishops and the deacons they talk about. Um, they would gather the people together who said, hey, we want to be a part of your community. We want to swear allegiance to your God above all other gods. Um, and, you know, you'll notice that Perpetua says to her dad, I'm a Christian. What else could I be? Um, And so she has gone through this process of learning what that allegiance entailed. 
Um, and then she says, I can do no other. That's who I am. I believe that that God is the real and one true God. Uh, but they teach. So the catechumenate is a process of learning. Usually, well, it, depend, it depends. It was anywhere from a year um, to two years to uh, sometimes it was just 40 days before Easter. Um, but it, it sort of depends on where you are in church history. Uh, but it would be a process, some long amount of time, at least a month or two, where you would study and you would study with someone who would tell you what Christianity is, who their God is, how, uh, how this God created the world, how this God died for you, and how this God will bring you salvation. Um, and so you would learn all that, um, and then on Easter, um, you would be baptized. Um, so that's called the catechumenate. It's a little bit like a membership class, I guess, except for membership classes assume that you're already a Christian. Um, or um, I used to do something called the Alpha Course, uh, which is a, a course that uh, evangelizes people and teaches people about the faith before they make a commitment. Um, so the catechumenate is somewhere in between becoming a Christian and being a Christian in the modern parlance, uh, the w- modern way of speaking. It's... it's uh, you know, you haven't made the full commitment, and you haven't been baptized, but you're learning about it, and you probably think this is where you want to be. And usually by the end, you would, you would, say, you would say the uh, Nicene Creed um, or the Apostles' Creed before the Nicene's Creed, and that was when you swore allegiance to this God and this faith. They became your family. They became your um, support. They became your network. Um, it was because... You would be killed under certain circumstances. You had to have people on your side. The father in the story hates that his daughter is doing this. He says, look, I give you everything, and you think this God is more important? Um, And she says, yes, I've heard the Apostles' Creed. I know that God created and Christ came, born of a virgin, died for you for the forgiveness of sins. She says, yeah, that's the true story. That's the truth. I want that. Um, And the other hard thing to remember Um, is um, ancient Rome was actually much more like India um, than than anything that we have in the modern day, which is to say, in India, there are lots of gods. Um, And actually, Christians came to India in the first century, but that's another story. But usually what happens is you could just add another god on. You're like, oh, well, maybe we'll worship that god at some point too. Like, you know, yeah, we we have many gods. What's one more? Cool. Um, Help us out. Give us another god so that we can pray to. Um, But the Christians go through the catechumenate because they said, no, it doesn't work like that for us. There is only one god. Um, and we come from the Jewish people, right? So Christians were um, a form of uh, uh, or a ex- uh, continuation of Judaism in the Old Testament story. And they said, there's just one God. You can't just add us on. Um, you can't just, um, you know, say, yeah, well, I'll pray to this God this day and this God that day. You guys worship on Sunday? Cool. We worship um, Saturn on Saturday. That's where we get our word for Saturday. Um, <laughs> um, and so, you know, we can, yeah, we can worship Saturn on Saturday. We can worship the moon God on Monday. Monday, moon God. Um, and, uh, you know, we can worship our other gods on other days, and we'll just add your God on. Um, sure, that's fine. Uh, but, but Christian said no. Um, you have to swear allegiance. You cannot sacrifice to the Caesars who called themselves gods. Um, you cannot sacrifice to any other gods. Um, and you may lose your family and everything else for this. Um, so, yeah, so it's a huge social cost. Um, but, but, there was, but like I say, the catechumenate, they would go through a lot of instruction to be sure that they knew the Christian story, the scriptural story, um, and that they were willing to swear allegiance um, to this God. And then you'd be baptized. Um, so that was preparation for baptism. 
That was all part of stuff that I wanted to say anyway, but I, it gives you a little bit of like, so they were in this class getting ready, we think, so this was March. Um, so according to church history, this happens in March. Uh, Easter is usually somewhere around end of March, early April. Um, at that time, there were debates over when Easter should happen. Some of the Christians didn't like that they continued to use uh, the Jewish calendar to date Easter, um, but probably Easter would have happened, uh, Easter would have been on the horizon. They were close um, to their baptism day. They had been studying this uh, for a while, and they said, yeah, we know we want to be a part of this. And what would happen is, um, so there wasn't a full-scale persecution from the emperor, from the emperor down. So the emperor is, emperor is a guy called Septimus Severus, um, and he ruled for around 20 years. Um, he didn't enact large-scale persecutions, but it was illegal to be a Christian, but he wasn't like sending people out all the time, as would later happen under Diocletian and Decius, um, the two later persecutions. Um, so Severus was severe, um, as the name would imply, but not so severe um, as later emperors. So there weren't constant persecutions, but if you were tipped off, um, they would have to send uh, the soldiers in to break up the, the churches. So we think that someone tipped them off and said, the Christians are meeting in this house church, go round them up. Um, and Severus, his son, was having a birthday in March. And Severus said, hey, cool, uh, my kid's having a birthday. Let's kill some Christians in the arena, um, and it'll be a great celebration for him. Um, and so that's what they did, right? So they said, okay, we'll gather up these Christians. We've been tipped off that they're gathering we know that Christians don't offer sacrifice to the emperor, um, so we know that they, you know, that we can get them on this technicality, and then we'll just feed them to the lions, um, and uh, you know, we can all celebrate as great Romans and these stupid Christians. Um, that that would be how they would say it, right? Um, all right, I'm going to pause for a second before we get into the text a little bit more. But uh, any any questions about that? Okay. Is that where you get the word catechism? Uh, yeah, so right, so the catechism, if you've ever, like uh, I went to Westminster, um, we did the Westminster Shorter Catechism or the London Baptist Confession, these sorts of things. Yeah, that was how um, Christians, I mean, basically for many, many generations, they would teach their children or they would teach other Christians and they would catechize uh, them. Uh, but but it, was, it was assumed, you know, it was assumed that people, um, you didn't take this commitment lightly. Like, you had to really be sure that you knew what you were about to do because it might cost you so much. Um, and one other interesting way that they uh, would find out if you were a Christian or if they did find out you were a Christian, they would probably, you know, we have a full Bible um, that has Genesis to Revelation, but they might only have, if, if they had any, they might only have a scroll that might be Mark or that might be Matthew or some smaller form of it. And the Roman soldiers would come in and they would say, give us your text. Um, and, uh, and so that, that was how you betrayed your faith. If you handed over um, your scriptural text, um, then you were, you've betrayed your faith. Um, so sometimes, interestingly, part of the reason that we don't have, uh, like sometimes you'll hear people talk about the other gospels or other texts. So it seems that a lot of early Christians would find those and hand those over to the Romans who would burn those. So we have fewer of those uh, because the Christians would try to cheat uh, the Romans and say, yeah, maybe these are our texts. Um, and that was a way to get rid of the false what they considered the false teaching, and they would have the Romans destroy them for them, um, which I just think is kind of funny. Um, 
uh, but that's a little bit later. I mean, some of that, you know, that gets really intense later in church history. Okay, so amphitheater at, Car- uh, at Carthage. Um, this amphitheater actually was built, um, we think, um, maybe a few years after um, the martyrdom of Perpetua and Philistos, but it would have looked like something like this, um, something similar. Um, and I, I'll show you a few different things. One of them is, actually just looks like our modern stadiums. Like if you've been down to the, uh, the old Bush Stadium was actually built after the Colosseum a little bit. Um, and uh, you, the, they had the arches. Um, that's actually meant to look like these kind of arches. Um, and, but you can see the passageways. You'd go underneath, climb up, get in your seat. Um, and instead of watching uh, Ozzie Smith do a backflip and Lou Brock steal a base, you would watch Romans, or you'd watch either gladiators kill each other um, or um, animals kill Christians. Um, and that was your entertainment uh, when the emperor come, came to town. So Severus would have come to town for that day. Um, and he would have sat somewhere, uh, we don't know exactly where, and he would have overseen uh, this. And he would say, here, son, here's your great party and celebration. Um, isn't that rough? Yeah. Um, so, what was it in the psychology that made sort of tearing up other humans uh, and what, what was it that made that a celebratory event? Well, um, it's Did not clear. Sort of like As, celebrate yeah. our dominance over these other people or... So a couple different things, like you can imagine, um, I mean, even in, by the medieval period, uh, when you would have someone who murdered another person, that, that was a show of how you'd punish them. So in the, ancient, in the ancient world, there aren't really prisons in the sense that we have prisons these days. I mean, you would either pay restitution if you stole, um, or you would go into a kind of debt slavery, or they would kill you. Um, there were kind of there were very few options, and they didn't have the resources to just keep people permanently in prison. So this was also it was also a kind of deterrent. Um, so it served two functions: it was a celebratory thing for a bloodthirsty emperor and his son, um, and the people who would come to watch it. They sort of um, you know like just the same. There would be a public execution. Um, they would kind of watch it, but. Um, yeah, it, it, I mean, it doesn't, that's it, not perfect explanation, but that's part of what would go on. So they would hold you for a little while in these undercells, um, and, and then whenever the day came, they would, uh, they would send you up and release. So the animals would, so probably whatever animals they had might be kept in here too. You'd probably have the humans on one side, the animals on the other, so you would see um, what was on, uh, on offer for, for uh, like the animals could see their dinner, um, and, uh, you know, the people could be terrified for what was about to happen to them. And this is the Romans desiring to torture um, any Christians. Um, I would just say that I haven't, I haven't read, it's, a, it's an interesting question in this context, but I, I, so I haven't studied this, but I have read uh, quite a bit of information about just the history of public executions in the United States, and, and I mean, that was fairly popular up and through about the, even the 20s and the 30s, the 1920s, 1930s, and, um, and, and it is very much a psychological issue, and, and I don't remember who said this in some that I've read, but it's akin to, or uh, they likened it to, uh, people you know driving down the highway and being completely fascinated by a, mm. a gory accident, mm-hmm. and just just that fascination with what what is happening. So that's not really an explanation mm-hmm. so much, but it, I mean it's very much. It's not for one thing. I don't think it's it's limited to this time frame. Mm-hmm. I mean it's still very much alive and well today. 
Um, but there's clearly some fascination individual people have with this type of activity. If you look at what's on TV, there's tons of violence there. Mm -hmm. It's just that we have special effects and we've gotten to the point where we don't let you actually do that to people. Yeah. Well, I, I think it could probably be, it, it could probably be already kind of to that point about television that like we have a lot of outlets to kind of sublimate a lot of similar feelings that we might have in the modern day, but in a way that is not immediately injurious to other people, whereas they didn't have TV, a lot of them probably couldn't read. Like, entertainment, such as it is, probably only existed in this fashion. Yeah. Now, it's interesting you mentioned the violence on TV and stuff. I can, I can sort of see the battles. Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah. there's a competitive aspect to the, you know, someone can win and lose, but the slaughter thing is just kind of like, What's that for? Yeah. 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 I, mean, then I apologize to anybody who I offended by saying I, I can sort of understand the battles. Yeah. Well, and they did also um, actually recreate battles. I mean, we know that at one point they recreated a naval battle in the Colosseum and, you know, stuff like that. I mean, so there was some of that, but it was also the only entertainment. Um, it was okay because these people were standing against them, you know, and so this is what happens when you stand against me. You get what you deserve. That's right. You, and you did it anyway. Yeah. So um, I, part of the reason that, like, I had you read Romans 1, um, so he, that is Jesus Christ, was uh, declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. So Lord um, in Greek is kurios, which is what the Caesar was called. Um, son of God, um, Caesar Augustus was the son of Julius Caesar, the son of God. Um, uh, let's see, uh, later we talk about salvation, the power of God for salvation. Um, so when you say, uh, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation, that is to deliver you, to save you, to protect you. Um, and the Romans said, that's what we do. We bring salvation. We are the sons of God. We are the Caesars. Um, and we bring salvation. Um, and um, now we bring salvation by slaughtering our enemies. Um, and you have to swear absolute fealty and allegiance to us. Um, and so whenever Christians proclaim this stuff, they're saying, in, implicitly, they're saying, God is in control, not you. God actually delivers us, not you. Um, so they are sticking their finger in the eye of any Roman who hears them say it. Um, and there are coins that have a lot of these phrases on them, uh, but they sit, they're in, uh, in support of another emperor or of another ruler. Um, so the Christians are putting their finger in the eye of all of this. And they're also saying, we don't care, for, you know, well, first to the Jew and then to the Greek, or uh, Paul says in Galatians, um, uh, for the Jew and the Gentile um, alike, um, neither slave nor free. They were trying to radically up to overturn the social order. Um, this was a threat. Um, because Christians, if they continued to do this, they would continue to upend our understanding of power. Because part of the power of the martyrs is memory, right? So there's, um, there's a great quote that I like from, um, from a modern political philosopher. But he says, um, the one who sacrifices is so much stronger than the one who kills because the community that remembers the one who dies is permanent, um, stays, they continue to remember, but nobody wants to remember a killer um, in the same way. And no one will celebrate um, the killer like those who remember those who sacrifice. And so part of even us rereading this story 
is making, I want Perpetua and Felicitas and their memory to be more powerful um, than the story of those who killed them, right? So part of, of that is like re- keeping that memory alive um, so that they have a strength that's stronger um, than, than could ever be possible for their killers. Um, and so they say that this memory can hold a group together as it did, right? So Christians, despite the fact that there were multiple persecutions for hundreds of years, uh, were stronger, um, you know, than the Roman Empire. Um, all right, let's um, all right, let's get into the story a little bit. Um, uh, let's see. Can I have someone? Uh, so can I have someone just read uh, from? Let's see. What time am I supposed to end? Ten fifty. Yeah. Okay. Um, all right. So we got about ten minutes. Um, <laughs> so can someone read the first paragraph for me? So starting at one. Yeah. Just uh, the deeds recounted about the faith. I can do that. Uh, the deeds recounted about the faith in ancient times were a proof of God's favor and achieved the spiritual strengthening of people as well. And they were set forth in writing precisely that honor might be rendered to God and comfort the people, or comfort to people by the recollection of the past through the written word. Should not then more recent examples be set down to contribute equally to both ends? For indeed, these two will one day become ancient and needful for the ages to come, even though in our own day they may enjoy less prestige because of the prior claim of antiquity. Okay. So why did uh, so this part is not written by Perpetua? Um, this was written, we think, by uh, Saturus, the, um, one of the other guys. Um, we'll get to Perpetua's part momentarily. So why does he write these down? So they're remembered. So they're remembered, yeah. And so they're remembered, and why, why is that memory important? What do they offer? What do these martyrs offer? What is their example for? I mean, it kind of sounds bizarre, but what I took away from it was kind of a freshness okay. um, of the price that people were willing to pay for Christianity. I mean, it's one thing for, I mean, even as we sit here today, it's, it's one thing to study this and think back about the people who were willing to die for their faith thousands of years ago. There's no doubt that it would be a completely different class if people in this city were living through things like this today. Mm-hmm. And I think as time goes on, as you, as you get farther and farther away from those types of events, the less meaningful they become, mm-hmm. the less real they become. Yeah. So by preserving new, new, a new situation, they sort of close that time gap mm. for the next generation. Yeah. And I think it makes some of the older ones more meaningful because it gives you a kind of a, a connection to jump back to as well. Mm-hmm. If, if this is stuff that I've read about in the past, that would be distant to me. But if I can come up with examples of how it's happening in the present too and connect myself to those people, then through those people I'm also connected to the past. Mm-hmm. And I start to see myself as the end of a long chain as opposed to completely disconnected. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they thought, I mean, part of it, too, is a martyr suffer. So sometimes this is called, how does he call it? He calls it the martyrdom. Sometimes uh, the, the Latin word is just a passio, a suffering. Um, and we talk about Christ's passion. Um, so in a sense, what they saw themselves doing um, was 
some way imitated, I mean, they were in a sense imitating their Lord. Like Christ didn't um, desire death necessarily in the strictest sense. Like he wasn't trying to go out and die, but he was willing to suffer ultimately um, because that's what uh, happened to him. And so the same word, passion, is used um, for what these people suffered. So you also were connected to the story of Christ. So watching this story, telling these stories, um, in a sense connects you to the very, uh, the memory of, and that's what it means, right? Martyr is a witness, a testimony, is a living testimony um, of, of, of what Christ offers us. Um, yeah, also, uh, even though in our day they might enjoy less prestige because of the prior claim of antiquity, um, I'm, I'm an ancient historian, so I too think that older things are better most of the time. Uh, but, uh, you know, that's, uh, that's at odds with the rest of our culture. <laughs> but, um, yeah, so then they say, so um, he goes on to quote um, Acts 2, 17 through 18, which I believe is also a quotation of Joel, for in the last days I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and their sons and daughters shall prophesy and on man, uh, oh, wait, uh, I will pour, uh, yeah, and I will pour out my spirit on my servants um, and handmaidens. Um, um, I will pour out my spirit, and the young men shall see visions, and the old men shall dream dreams. So they were connecting themselves to the story of Acts, to the story of the New Testament, and even the story of the Old Testament, right? So God's spirit is alive. So part of what uh, Perpetua, Perpetua gets a vision. Um, and that is God communicating to her. So part of recording this story is recording that God still speaks. Um, God's spirit is still with these women as he promised in, uh, in Acts, which at this point was about 200 years before, 150. Um, and, and then even connects them to the Old Testament, even connects them to the Jewish story um, of God's prophecy in the Old Testament. So the, retelling this story just brings them actually back even to the story of the New Testament and of the Old Testament um, and God's presence with God's people. Um, let's see. Um, let's skip to part uh, two. Um, it also brings glory to God, uh, which is also a little bit um, strange in the sense that God, and, and Augustine tries to explain this as well, but he says, God doesn't glory in the fact that they're dying, but the just cause for which they're dying. Um, so there's a sense in which these women who are faithful to God to the end also brings glory um, to God, and that's, that's what, how they understood it. Um, so I, well, I explained catechumens, so they explain a little bit here in part two uh, what was going on with them. Uh, they were... Um, yeah, they were all catechumens, so they were studying to become Christians. They were probably commi- fairly committed at this point. Um, they had been doing it for some time. Um, and uh, I, the, the exchange with the father is just um, heartbreaking and uh, tough. But can, um, can someone please uh, read from uh, part three, while we were still under arrest? While we were still under arrest, she said, my father, out of love for me, was trying to persuade me and shake my resolution. Father, said I, do you see this vase here, for example, or water pot or whatever? Yes, I do, said he. And I told him, could it be called by any other name than what it is? And he said, no. Well, so too, I cannot be called anything other than what I am, a Christian. At this, my father was so angered by the word Christian that he moved towards me as though he would pluck my eyes out. But he left. At, he left it. He left at that and departed, vanquished along with his diabolical arguments. All right. 
Um, so this uh, part three is the beginning of the testimony from Perpetua. Um, so there are accounts of the story written in Latin and Greek. So she probably, we think that they spoke both languages in Africa at this time. Uh, but regardless, this is her account of what she says to her father. We don't know how she wrote it down exactly. Maybe she told, you know, she spends some time in prison. So there was some duration of time where they were at their house church preparing uh, for their baptism and the date of uh, the um, the birthday of Septimus Severus's son um, Geta. So they say uh, so. Yeah. So she was in prison as as the story goes on. Right. There's back and forth. The child has to go to prison to her um, and that sort of thing. Her father's. So probably the only reason her father is even allowed in here is. Um, what you do when you say you're a Christian is you renounce your status as a Roman citizen. And so her father was, um, so um, he was an upper class Roman. Um, he had some wealth, some authority, some power. So he could get into the prison to see his daughter. Uh, but when she says, I am a Christian, she gives up any right to a fair trial. She get, Just like Paul does in Acts, right? He says he's a Roman citizen. Um, it's the same situation. Um, and she renounces all of that by becoming a Christian. And she says, and why does she say, it's interesting, why does she say that she does it? What, uh, what is her um, defense of her faith? I am what I am. Yeah. I'm nothing else. <laughs> I'm nothing I else. Be, I can't be considered anything else. Yeah. I mean, that was remarkable. I, I just... You know, I already mentioned the the fact that she's young, she's a brand new Christian, but to just really be able to defend her faith on those terms and to and to some extent really not even defend it, but I think explain it and the magnitude of it to her father in that moment. Uh, that, that's that's remarkable. I mean, it's it's frankly nothing short of the spirit working in her. I, I don't think anyone. On their own, in any, no matter how educated you are, in this sort of tense kind of environment, could do that. So I mean, that's clearly the spirit talking through her. But it, it's remarkable the way she interacts with her father here. Yeah, she says example she uses. When you asked earlier what um, what drew her to do to to make those bold claims, and and when you talked about how you know, we remember these who were martyrs and that forms our faith and informs our faith. And it makes me think of the church today. You know, in that time, um, people who were marginalized were drawn to the church because they offered something no one else offered. And I think many times today, people who are marginalized are terrified of the church. And so as believers, our job is to listen to the Holy Spirit in us and to remember these stories so that we can be the body that people desire to be. We have the safe place. We give women and lesser than and whoever what they need when, when the rest of society doesn't do that. And sometimes, many times, oftentimes we are that, but many times I feel like what people hear and what we sometimes have to offer is, can't do that. That was bad. Yeah. J-Lo, nasty girl, you can't do that anymore. That was a bad halftime show. And then move on. Instead of offering the other, the encouragement. We're quick to come down on the what's wrong. Um, when really our calling is to offer what's right. Yeah. And do that boldly. And that's self-sacrificing thing, to be able to do that. Yeah. 
Um, I mean, we are out of time. There's so many. Um, if you were curious about the Egyptian, she steps on the Egyptian. Um, the uh, that was probably we think it's a reference to anybody who is an enemy of God at this point. So if you go back to the Old Testament story, um, the the e- Egypt was the antagonist to the Jewish people. Um, so we think that that's part of what was going on. She steps on the serpent's head. Um, that's probably her reference to Genesis three, right? So um, at the uh, at the curse of Eve, or after the curse of Eve, um, it, it says that he will bite your heel, but you will step on his head. Um, and so we think that that's also an allusion uh, to Genesis, and that is um, this woman's triumph over um, Satan. Um, and so she's sort of living out actually that sort of um, prophecy about Eve. Um, and so there's actually a lot of connection between um, Eve and Mary and, and early Christian women. Um, yeah, um, but she gets this, the, the yeah, they, she doesn't want to, you know, it's interesting, she doesn't want to bear the robes of the false gods. Again, just continual rejection um, of, um, of the... Um, of the Roman uh, pantheon and that culture. Like she says, no, I am so thoroughly uh, Christian that, that even to my death, um, I will not um, dress up like that. Um, it, the, you know, just words for, um, so she's continually called courageous. Um, the word for courage in Roman and, uh, excuse me, in Latin and Greek is uh, manly. Um, so calling a woman courageous is calling her manly. Um, so these women were, um, even in the very story, they're being given characteristics that were only available to men. Um, so they're sort of, you would say, they're sort of transgressing social codes, even by telling the story. Um, they're saying, you know, we used to think that this was the, only the domain of men. But let me tell you that these women um, actually showed more manliness um, than the men. Um, so this was all, another way to sort of un, uh, overturn um, the social values of the day. Um, we will call manly, courageous, um, these women. And so they had a hard time even expressing it because it would seem weird, you know, to call a woman manly. But that was what they were trying to say. We don't even have words for this. Um, this is so out of the norm, um, and uh, and that's what and that's what they did. Um, yeah, they get to choose their own death, uh, which is again brutal. Um, but um, but they but they do, and they follow through to the end. Uh, the very at the very end, uh, the la- I'll just read the last little bit. Um, ah, most valiant. And blessed martyrs, valiant, valor, comes from that word for manly. Um, Truly are you called and chosen for the glory of Christ Jesus our Lord. And anyone who exalts, honors, and worships his glory should read for the consolation of the church these new deeds of heroism, which are no less significant than the tales of old. Um, For these new manifestations of virtue... Again, the, Roman, the Latin word for manliness will bear witness to one in the same spirit who still operates into God, the Father of Almighty, to his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, to whom is splendor and immeasurable power for all the ages. So that power of God um, continues to be available to these women, even in their death, even in their suffering, and it's also available to us. So the Christians would read and reread, and they would, uh, they would sometimes have, uh, like I say, all night sort of vigils and, and sometimes even just parties um, at the memory of them because they said they were in paradise with God. Um, so they said it's a celebration. Um, they have received the crown of glory that's promised them in Revelation. Um, and um, so, yeah, so this story that should be 
um, so sad um, is meant to be their glory. Um, and it's also meant, and it's by, by virtue as well, God's glory. Um, God is being glorified, um, and, uh, and that same um, power that God gave them is available uh, to us through the power of the Holy Spirit. So, um, all right, I'm three, a little over time, but we're also not before church starts. So um, I, I'll be available for questions after. Um, thank you very much. This has been another episode of A History of Christian Theology. Thank you for listening, um, and uh, rate us and review us on iTunes. Uh, we'd love to hear from you. Uh, and also uh, like us on Facebook. Thanks. Have a good week.